Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Text is on screen. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm the pastor here. If I've never met you, welcome. If you're here, if you're tuning in, it's good to have you with us. Kids, uh, preschool up to first and second grade, you're dismissed uh, for Children's Church. And parents, reminder, you can pick up your kids either right before or right after you take the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you're just uh, tuning in, if you're just coming here for the first time at Trinity City Church, you're in for a doozy. We are in the section of 1 Corinthians that is uh, getting a little risque. Uh, we have been preaching through the book of Corinthians um, for several weeks, and this is something we often do at Trinity City Church, is we pick a book of the Bible, and we preach through it verse by verse, and whatever comes up, comes up. And I have given you some uh, warnings uh, coming into the next several weeks that uh, there are quite a few topics, including today's topics, uh, that uh, will raise some eyebrows. Topics of sexuality, which we'll address today, body and sex next week, marriage and divorce, and also uh, the topic of singleness will also be coming up. If all that sounds super intense, don't worry, right in the middle of all those topics, Paul also brings up another issue to give us a little break, and that issue is slavery. So that's, uh, that's what we have coming up in the next several weeks, but this is what we do. We, we pick books of the Bible to get us to do this, to lean into this, to, to have our thoughts be captured by God's word, to think his thoughts after him. That is the goal with this topic, including the topic today of sexuality. Now, because uh, of the nature of the topic, uh, this is the type of sermon, and I've, uh, I haven't done this for a while, but I'm going to start the message and before I pray with a bunch of disclaimers. That's how you know you have a hot topic on your hand is when you have to take a pause and pr before you pray to say some disclaimers. Okay, so here are some of them. Uh, the issue of sexuality and faith is certainly a hot topic. People are very passionate about it. It's the type of thing that will get you canceled both in secular settings and religious settings, depending if you don't say the right thing. So I'm about to give a message that's probably not going to please everyone, uh, and that's, that's obvious. But more than likely, uh, no matter where you find yourself on the topic, you're going to find some disagreements with probably what I'm about to say. But keep this in mind, not many of you have to give a public speech about it. Not many of you have to go on record in front of a camera that's live streaming onto the internet to, <laughs> to talk about this issue, all right? So I say that, that I'm going to stick my neck out here a little bit in hopes that we can begin some really rich and deep and meaningful conversations with one another, okay? If I can do this in front of you all, live streamed on the internet, I think this is a conversation we, as a community of people, can lean into. Throughout the message, I am going to be quoting quite extensively from a bunch of different Christian authors 
who write from the experience of same-sex attraction. That is intentional because I want you to see and hear that I leaned into this topic by listening to their voice. And maybe if you are not as familiar with who to read or what type of authors to think about um, engaging, maybe some of these names will stick out for you. All right, another point. There's always a debate when talking about the issue of sexuality about terms. Some of the authors that I quote will describe themselves as gay. Other Christians will describe themselves with the experience of having same-sex attraction. Others are comfortable with words like queer, and still others are not a fan of any of these terms, all right? I'm aware of these issues and will likely be using words, phrases, and descriptions that will not please everyone. And when this occurs, I don't mean to do so to disrespe disrespect anyone, but rather to accurately quote and represent the sources I'm interacting with. All right, there's also debate about how the topic of sexuality relates to public policy, especially the issue of marriage. This message will not be getting into that at all. This is not a message on public theology. I've preached on that before. I think public theology is an important thing for Christians to engage in. That is not this sermon. How any belief in the church is implemented into public policy is something that Christians can and often do disagree on. That is okay. Um, it's not that I don't have an opinion on the matter, I'm happy to talk to anybody about that, but this sermon has to be limited in scope. In addition, uh, when I am referring to maybe the gay community or those with same-sex attraction, I'm just using this phrase uh, just to say that that's simply not my experience. It's not trying to get a kind of us versus them type of distinction that I feel like I have. In fact, I have deep relationships with many gay Christians and the LGBT community in my neighborhood and school and so forth. So this is a deeply personal issue for me as well. So when I say uh, gay Christians or those with same-sex attraction, I'm only saying that is not my specific experience. As I already kind of mentioned, the sermon is not comprehensive in nature. I had to cut a lot of this message down and we're still going to take our precious time. I'm just, I'm just giving you a heads up. The, the printer took a little bit longer than usual to get the manuscript out, okay? And uh, I mean, just keep this in mind. I, I looked at the date the last time I specifically leaned into this topic, and I've talked about sex and marriage and some of those things uh, almost once a year for quite, quite a while in my ministry, but leading into this specific topic, the last time we did it was 2014. So it's been a while. Last time we did it, Nine Sundays. We took nine Sundays to lean into it, to address it. So this is one message. So to say that it's not comprehensive in nature is a bit of an understatement. Final disclaimer, and then I'll finally pray, okay? My hope for this message is that the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ shines bright. That's it. That is my main goal in seeing this topic that I know you all think about, that you wrestle with, that you pray about, that you labor over, that as we lean into this very relevant, heavy topic, that the end goal of it all is that God's glory will shine, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed, and that our neighbors will feel loved by that gospel of grace. That's the end goal. To help us accomplish that, brothers and sisters, we better pray. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for attentive ears in this sanctuary and 
rooms throughout our city that people are tuning in to hear this. Lord, we commit our lives to your word. It is your word that woke our faith from the dead. It is your word that speaks comfort to us in the deepest imaginable pain that we can ever experience. And so therefore, we trust that your word has something to say about the topic at hand. So help us to engage it with clarity, with compassion, with grace and truth, and all the fruit that your spirit bears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few winters ago, I was shoveling snow out in uh, the front sidewalk at this church building, and a couple uh, crazy things happened. A couple unannounced visitors uh, came to the front, and one person was a mentor of mine, a guy that had been uh, another senior pastor, been mentoring me for well over a decade now, and he just happened to be in the neighborhood, saw that I was shoveling, and just pulled over here to Dewey, got out of his car, and came and talked to me. And so we were up there chit-chatting, and then uh, somebody else shows up, and this other person's a stranger. Well, this person was heading that, no, what direction? That direction towards St. Paul on the other side of the road. And she was driving one of those very small cars that, you know, they're kind of fueled by sunshine and, and unicorn sweat. Uh, so she was driving one of those things, and she whips it around and does a Yui right in the middle of the road uh, and comes to the curb where he and I we're chatting, and she rolls down the window. And I kid you not, this is one of the very vivid things I remember in my mind. She looked like Edna Mode from The Incredibles, if you've seen that before. She's the girl that stitches together the, the uniforms for the superheroes. That's, I just very much remember that's, that's what she kind of looked like. And so she rolls down the window, and she's about to ask a question. This is why she you know, nearly faced death to come talk to us by whipping her car around. And her question was this, does this church have any gay pastors? And that was the question. How would you have answered that question? Out there shoveling the snow, not, not even knowing what this person was going to ask you. And well, since I'm the only pastor here, I said, not presently. <laughs> That's all I said. I didn't know, like, what do you say? Like, you, and one of those things is just like, you wanted to have coffee with the person, you wanted to sit down, you don't even know what perspective they're coming from. Uh, and asking that question, what they're kind of fishing for, you have no idea. But as you can imagine, being in pastoral ministry, uh, this is the type of question that comes up a lot. What are your views on sexuality? What is the Christian faith's views on the issue of sexuality? And this is a question in our culture that from both folks that are secular and religious. Now, many times with this type of hot topic, it seems like there's only two sides. There's the LGBTQ side that's open and affirming, and then there's the religious side that wants to pray the gay away. That's what it seems. Those are the two big platforms. Those are the loudest voices in our current cultural moment. But as a pastor and over the years of ministry, I find myself holding convictions and representing a side in this debate that doesn't fit well into this either-or choice. It's a third way of approaching this topic and it's the type of way that doesn't get a large platform. So if one of the things, and I know St. Paul folks are like this, that if one of your heart, uh, heartbeats in life is to represent those that don't have much of a voice, not much of a platform, this message that I'm about to give is that type of voice that I hope to represent in this sermon. I find myself agreeing with and often pastoring Christians who experience same-sex attraction but also hold to the traditional sexual ethic of scripture 
And this is a group in perspective who do not have a large platform. They're not the ones that are going to be on cable news. They're not the ones that are going to get podcasts that are going viral. This is a voice and a perspective that often isn't uh, represented well. Eve Tusnut is a gay celibate Christian uh, from the Catholic faith, and she describes this third way, this group, as those that are not only coming out with their sexual orientation, but as she says, they're coming out Christian. They share in the experience of having to tell people about their same-sex attraction, but they're also coming out as Christians who hold to the historic and traditional teachings of the Christian church in the areas of sexual ethics and marriage. I have many friends and acquaintances who experience same-sex desires and who are trying to figure out what that means for them. Even friends who fully embrace a gay identity but now experience a draw to the gospel so they don't identify with the Christian faith but they're curious about it and wonder what this means for them. Nothing about what I'm about to say is theoretical. It's deeply personal. It's deeply pastoral. For some of you, this sermon will be deeply personal as well because this is your story. For many others, this story is not yours, but I pray that this message will benefit you and present the hope of the gospel in a unique way. In this message, I'm not going to lay it out in terms of a defense of sexuality per se based on proof text. I'm going to lay out this message with the framework of scripture that you often hear of creation, fall, redemption. Why am I going to do that? To quote Wesley Hill, he's a gay and celibate Christian who serves as a theologian and Episcopal priest. He once wrote, quote, Not only in the church, but in many spheres of life, rules and demands can seem harsh and deadly if the rhyme or reason for the rules isn't easy to discern. A parent's warning, be home before 11 o'clock. Or a professor's assignment, read and summarize this article, can be maddening if the child or student fails to see the bigger picture within which the rules make some sense. For the early Christians, the story of God's work through his son, Jesus, provided that bigger picture within which their strange, unnatural choices and actions made sense. In the end, what keeps me on the path I have chosen is not so much individual proof texts from Scripture or the sheer weight of the church's traditional teaching against uh, same-sex practice. Instead, it is, I think, those texts and traditions and teachings as I see them from within the true story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so what follows is an attempt at that story of creation, fall, redemption, in light of this topic. So let's start with creation. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God created everything from the beginning to give him glory, to disclose that glory to us. And in the beginning, we were all created in the image of God so that we would image him, that we would be like a mirror reflecting his glory to the world. And so at the center of our beings as a human being is to be made in the image of God. Specifically in these verses, God created humanity in his image as male and female with the ability to be fruitful and multiply. 
In the beginning, there is this love and union between male and female, and a man and a woman who may become husband and wife, and then father and mother to any children their union produces. Jesus affirms this vision called marriage in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, when he responds to a question on a debate about divorce and remarriage. He says in verse 4, Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And although God and, and Scripture has a very high view of marriage, is not the only relationship that God created us for. We all are created for many types of community and human interaction. Human beings are made for fellowship and love and service. God did not create a single person without an, any ability to enjoy a relationship with another human being. We are made for friends and colleagues and neighbors. These other types of relationships outside of marriage are not the constellation prize of relationships. The scripture, they speak very highly of other types of relationships. Consider Proverbs 17, 17, that speaks of friendships. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. What's this verse saying? It's saying that a sibling may be there during a time of adversity because you're related. It's what they're supposed to do. They're kind of obligated to be there for you because they're family. Yet a friend, it's saying, chooses to be there because of love. A friend is committed to you in thick and thin, not because of a blood relationship, but because of love. And it's no wonder that we can say that we can have friends in our life that are as close to us as a brother or sister. God created friends to, be a beautiful, to serve a beautiful purpose that is distinct from family bonds. And when you discover a friend and commit to that friendship, then that friend, then that life truly becomes a little bit more rich and wonderful. So these are, are taking place in the creation narrative because God is creating community and he's creating different types of relationships. Marriage and friends and neighbors and colleagues are all different types of relationship that God has ordered because of creation. And in setting these relationships, he's setting boundaries. God has set boundaries already all over Scripture at, at this point. There's day and night with a sun to shine in the day and a moon and stars to shine at night. There is sea and the land with unique creatures and animals that are bound in unique ways to these environments. So, too, God creates different relationships that flourish within the purposes and boundaries that God has established. Another author named uh, Rebecca McLa uh, McLaughlin who is a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, yet is also married to her husband. She writes about the importance of boundaries in a book called Confronting Christianity. She says that human beings thrive within boundaries, and we need boundaries to be free. Think about the different types of boundaries in your life. She mentions spatial boundaries. Uh, for example, as applies to, to sports with different fields for different games. We don't play basketball on a football field, but yet it's made to be played on a basketball court. There's temporal boundaries with hours committed to work, sleep, and leisure. You don't sleep at work, but sleep is a great thing to do at bedtime. And then there are relational boundaries as well. 
where it's inappropriate for a stranger to touch your body in many instances, yet if you end up in an ER, then it's appropriate for a doctor whom you have never met to perform surgery on your body. And these types of boundaries and these distinctions matter in how God has ordered creation. After giving these examples, the author says, quote, Within a Christian framework, opposite-sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. This boundary cuts off the possibility of sex with anyone else. It is highly restrictive and, in some respects, against our inclinations. Few married people never have the desire for sexual intimacy with someone other than their spouse. Thus, every Christian is called at times to sacrifice his or her desires. But marriage also creates immense freedom and security for loving sexual intimacy without fear of critique or abandonment. The boundaries of friendship fall in different places. They prohibit sex, but they create space for intimacy with multiple people who will touch our hearts, minds, and bodies in different ways. And now when we get to the fall, we start to understand when we understand the purposes of boundaries of how these types of relationships are impacted by sin. In Genesis 3, humanity rejects God and the world he has created. They rebel against him by no longer living in reference to him and the way he ordered creation and relationships. Human beings are now sinners by nature and by choice, and we live in a fallen world that now groans under that burden. This fall impacts our nature, our choices, and the entirety of creation. And due to the fall, we do not enter the kingdom of God without God's help. It's a little bit what's behind the verses that were read today in verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, and you heard the verse that we are unpacking there, the phrase that we're really leaning into. Before we go uh, any further, especially under this, this category of the fall and sin, I want to lean into some modern distinctives and how they categorize some of the things we're talking about and, and look at them in relation to theology. I'm taking these from Dr. Mark Yarhouse. He's a clinical psychologist who specializes in faith, sexuality, and gender. He serves as a professor at Wheaton College, and he helps, helps us with important distinctions about sexuality. And the point here is not to split hairs. It's important to understand modern categories and how they may or may not relate to biblical categories. So three important categories he writes about is, especially with this topic, is you have attraction or orientation, you have sexual behavior, and you have identity. What are they and how are they different from each other? Well, attraction or orientation is simply a category for someone who experiences attraction to either someone of the same sex or someone of the opposite sex. So same-sex attraction says nothing about someone's sexual actions. It's merely a description of their experience of attraction. Sexual behavior is a little bit self-explanatory. It talks about sexual actions. But then you come to identity. And identity is understanding sexuality as a source of identity. 
It's a relatively new category for modern culture. And the movement here is from what I experience, attraction or your orientation, uh, to what I have done, the behavior or action, to who I am. That's my identity. And the question we can ask is, does the fall, does the, the fact that sin has entered the world, does it have any impact on these modern categories? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And how I want to show that to you is by first leaning into how this applies to heterosexuals first, all right? So let me beat you up first, okay? Let's think about it from that perspective, all right? So heterosexuals, too, may think about themselves as their attraction or orientation, their sexual behavior, and their, and their identity. So what we have impacted in the doctrine of creation is that God has ordered relationships and he has done so in a way that he only calls people to engage in sex once a man and a woman covenant together in marriage to become husband and wife and then mother and father to any children their offspring produces. If our attraction pulls us into this covenant relationship, then it's good and it's holy. If we practice chastity and turn away from lust for the sake of other relationships, then that too is good and holy. We order our sexuality either towards marriage with faithfulness to one person or practice chastity when we remain unmarried. Yet as we know on this side of the fall, not one straight person remains righteous. Heterosexual persons are often lustful of multiple people in different relationships, friends, colleagues, and as we even seen in 1 Corinthians already, stepmoms, right? And also, getting married doesn't make one's attraction righteous. Married people often lust after other people outside of the marriage relationships. In this sense, their attraction or their orientation is disordered. Straight people also allow these disordered attractions to translate into their sexual behavior that is sinful. Straight people often consume pornography, have sex outside of marriage, and, as Paul addresses later in 1 Corinthians, they sleep with prostitutes at the temple. That's coming in a couple weeks. And, and you better believe that, especially in our current cultural moment, that straight people often ground their sexuality in their identity. And the way that they would process it is it would be something to the effect of like, look, it's just who I am. I'm a sexual being, and uh, since I am, and it's my body, I am free to do with it with whatever I want to do with it. And that comes close to some of the phrases that uh, people in Corinth uh, will be using in the text that we will look at next week. Why did I say all this? Uh, and kind of process those three categories through uh, the, the experience of straight people. And it is mainly to say this, the bottom line, being straight does not make you righteous. Straight people are sinners who are in deep need of grace as well. So this framework I impact for straight people also applies, though, with those that have the experience of same-sex attraction. God calls anyone, regardless of orientation, to either remain chaste if unmarried or, it, or to commit to a covenant union between a husband and a wife. As some gay authors write, that's a mixed orientation marriage. 
In addition, the scriptures never put our sexuality at the center of who we are. All human beings at the core of our identity are image bearers of the living God. And for those who are Christians, they are new creations in Christ, and that union in Christ is the ultimate center of our being. And that is why the authors I often read on this topic simply describe their sexualities in terms of experience. They will say that they are a Christian who experience same-sex attraction, or if they do describe themselves as gay Christians, they view gay as merely descriptive, but Christian as ultimate. As Wesley Hill, who I've already referenced, says, gay is the adjective and Christian is the noun. But in another sense, and this is important, having a, a gay orientation, to use this modern category, isn't necessarily sinful. I know some Christians always just you think about that and automatically you think that it's sinful. And this is why um, I push back on that partly. Part of the reason why I push back on that is when and, and in your, if you're in community with people, uh, have friendships with people from the LGBTQ community, and you, you listen to how they talk about their orientation, sometimes Christians automatically think that everything to do with how a gay person thinks about orientation has to do with sex and sexual attraction. But that's simply not true. When you have these relationships, you will find that often those in the gay community will talk about their orientation as also something that includes their impulse and desire for same-sex maybe friendship, companionship, and simply the desire for community. And those desires, brothers and sisters, according to scripture, there is no law against them. They are good and holy desires. And another reason uh, that I push back on thinking just exclusively right off the gate that just being gay is sinful and why that's not helpful is when we apply the important biblical distinctions such as temptation and sin. Nick Rowan is an author and minister who's a celibate Christian, and he writes this about his own experience, quote, In our sin nature, all of us are disordered sexually. My sexuality is disordered in that I experience a homosexual orientation. What I mean is that my sexual desires are exclusively oriented towards the same sex. This is true of me whether or not I am experiencing a specific attraction at any given moment. As I sit here writing, I am not experiencing an attraction to another man, but I am exclusively attracted to men. So at this moment, though I have a homosexual orientation, I do not believe I am sinning in this regard. Let's say that I experience an attraction to another man. I don't go looking for it, but it rises up spontaneously within me. At this point, my attraction falls into the category of temptation, and I can do one of two things. I can fight the desire in the same manner that anyone who is tempted with pride, jealousy, or fear would, and kill it before I sin. Or I can follow the desire into lust of the mind and eventually of the flesh, flesh, which is volitional sin. When I look at another male and experience the butterflies of attraction, I must lay the desire for inappropriate activity with him at the feet of Jesus and turn toward the superior promises of reward found in pursuing righteousness. If I do this, even though I experience this disordered groan of a broken creation, I have not sinned. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Why is this important? It's to put all of what a gay person's experiences 
in, in its proper category so you can understand it. So we don't put everything about who they are in some type of category that's broken or sinful because always hearing that if you're a gay person, whether you're a gay Christian or pursuing Christ, is such a devastating thing to hear all the time, especially when some of the longings that you have that's associated with your orientation includes stuff that the Christian faith clearly affirms. As I said, the longing and desire for friendship intimacy, companionship, and community, these are good things for us to desire regardless of what your orientation is. Now, the third part of the sermon is redemption. But before I go on to that part, I want to reference again that vice list, that uh, list of uh, sins that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, one more time because there's a word in there that it's really important to pull out and highlight in a sermon like this. And that's the word slanderers. That's one of the words that's on that list. It's on the list with everything else that says if you are a slanderer and your identity is so connected with that that you don't repent of your slander, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why it's important to uh, highlight this. In some translations, they don't translate it as slanderer. They translate it as revilers. What this word means in its original context is people who practice verbal abuse. That's a slanderer. And this action is sinful regardless of who it's committed against, no matter who the object is. And this includes, and this is so important, this includes any type of abuse or bullying of the LGBTQ community. Bullying and abuse and slanderer and slandering and, and reviling the LGBTQ community is a sin and an affront against a holy and righteous God. Any type of bullying, crude jokes, and disregard for the LGBTQ community is sinful and wicked according to the word of God. And if someone and this is how high the stakes are in 1 Corinthians. If someone does those types of things and that wickedness takes such root in their heart that they fail to repent, the scriptures say that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The LGBTQ community bears the image of God, and they are precious in his sight. And whenever this community is targeted with abuse or violence, then especially, especially the people of God ought to react with compassion, lament, prayer, and support. That also is part of the fall and the sin when we don't rise up and do that. It's in the text, and we have to address that. Now let's move on to redemption. When one of the ways of uh, um, highlighting the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to first highlight three different ways that I think that uh, the gay community hears a false gospel. I want to compare these false gospels to the true gospel of redemption in Jesus Christ. Those three false gospels I've uh, titled the sexual gospel, the therapy gospel, and the heterosexual gospel. All three of them are unhelpful at best or heretical at worst. The sexual gospel is more of the gospel that you hear in the world. It's the gospel that you hear maybe more in sexual sources. And it is, 
not an exaggeration to say that this is one of the most sexualized cultures that we have ever experienced. Sex is really at the heart of who we are. It's in all of our music, our movies. We are obsessed with it. And to the degree that people think that you are weird if you've never experienced it, that there's something uh, almost like unhuman about that. And so the message that often those that are in the LGBTQ community often hear from our culture is that if you just start having sex, you're good. Like you're not going to be truly human unless you engage in that. That's what it means to be truly human. Not only that community, but everybody constantly hears that message all the stinking time. Meanwhile, Christians are over here and we worship Jesus Christ, single, never been married, never had sex. And it would be absolutely heretical to say that he wasn't truly human in addition to being fully God. We know that he was, and he was a full human being and experienced the full breadth and depth of that humanity even though he was single, even though he never married, even though he never had sex. That is a terrible message that our culture often preaches to those who have never engaged in sex. But then there's the false gospel that's called the therapy gospel. And this refers to the type of conversion therapy with the tagline, pray the gay away. And I know people often debate conversion therapy because it's in politics, but I'm a pastor. And I look at this issue theologically. And theologically speaking, this preaches this, this false gospel. It's the false gospel that says, if you go through this therapy, if you accomplish these steps, if you pray enough and have enough faith, then God will change your sexual orientation. Bogus! That's toilet water theology. And it's toilet water theology because it's the same thing that the prosperity gospel preaches. The prosperity gospel preaches is that if you have enough faith, if God loves you enough, then you're going to be wealthy. Then you're going to have the best career, and your body will stay healthy without any illness. And it puts this burden on people, whether it's the prosperity gospel or the therapy, the conversion therapy gospel, that says if you just do these works, then God will respond by changing things and giving you whatever you perceive as the good life. The reality of the gospel is that God does not promise us those things. He actually is very clear that in this life there will be suffering. In this life there will be struggles. But the hope of the gospel is, is that he redeems and renews and uses those things for his purposes and his glory. And then there's the heterosexual gospel, which says that if you just become heterosexual, then you'll be truly human. But we already saw, and I... That's why I spent so much time on it, by, by the impact that the fall had on heterosexuality and being straight, that's not necessarily the good life. They got issues, and we got issues when it comes to that. Author and hip-hop hip artist Jackie Hill Perry is a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, and she's married to her husband. They have four kids. But she writes about this and the, the false gospel of the heterosexual gospel. She says, quote, You'd think he was uh, listening to the ways that Christians try to encourage same-sex attractive people within or outside their local churches to be truly human. They, and he's talking about, she's talking about the church, they dangled the possibility of heterosexual marriage above their heads, point to it like it's heaven on a string, something to grab and get, whole, and get the whole truth. And though it's unusually well, usually well-meaning, it's very dangerous. Why? 
because it puts more emphasis on marriage as the goal of the Christian life rather than knowing Jesus. And that's why it's a false gospel. The goal of the Christian life is not to become straight. The goal of the Christian life is Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and making everything new. And that's the redemption. That's the call. That's, it's the same call to everybody, all of humanity, regardless of our experiences or our orientation. It's that if you come to Christ, then you will be truly human. You're a new creation in him by his grace alone, and he gives you a new calling on your life to glorify him. That's what verse 11 is getting at, at 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And this was some of you, after giving that vice list, he says, that's what some of you were. Not currently are, but that's what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when we place our faith in Christ, we get a new identity through union with him. Our broken desires and even lusts and behavior of our heart uh, because of the fall is something that we no longer desire to do. And those desires don't determine who we are because we have been washed by Jesus. And this language is washed and sanctified and justified. It's just rich with gospel meaning. Wash is being cleansed by Get cl being cleansed from the uh, power of guilt and sin in one's life. Sanctified is when our identity with previous sinful actions is now broken since we are now set apart for God's purposes. Justified means that we have a status before God of being righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. And all this gospel activity is taking place within a fellowship called the church. You see, brothers and sisters, marriage is not the only one-body relationship that the scriptures speak of. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the church as what? One body under the headship of Jesus Christ. And he has already used the terms brothers and sisters to describe the intense bond the church has with one another because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Church also is a one-body relationship. And within this union with Christ and his people, the God, the God of the universe calls us for his purposes. And this is exactly what happened to the blind man in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. People passing by the blind man asked Jesus, who is responsible for his blindness? Did this man or his parents sin to cause this condition? And Jesus responds in John 9, 3 and says, neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus, but this happened so what? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. The great Christian author C.S. Lewis once had this text in mind when he was responding to a letter about a question concerning sexuality and same-sex attraction. And he wrote that John 9 did, disclose, did not disclose to us the cause of this man's blindness, but it does tell us the ultimate purpose so that the works of God may be displayed in the blind man's condition. Lewis continues to write in this letter that whether one is blind or has same-sex attraction, each of those things conceals a vocation, as he says. And since there is a vocation, then the message to those with same-sex attraction, he writes, isn't just what is prohibited, stop doing this, but also all the ways that God is saying yes to a unique calling in your life. 
Lewis writes about a gay friend who had this view, and he says, quote, this is from Lewis directly, he believed that his necessity would be turned into spiritual gain, that there would be certain kinds of sympathy and understanding, a certain social role which mere men and mere women could not give. So we as gospel people do not cast a full view of the gospel until we move not just from what is prohibited, but also to what is the calling. What is God saying yes to with this specific vocation in your life? God is not only calling us to use all of our lives to bring him glory, but to see everything as ultimately pointing to him. Creation, relationships, the enjoyments of this world all tell us something about God and the new heavens and new earth that are coming. It points to a new creation. The power and intimacy of sex points beyond itself to the, to, to, to the depth of intimacy we were truly made for, intimacy with God himself, and sex only serves as a metaphor for a much greater intimacy that we will share with him in the new heavens and new earth. The sacred institution of marriage also points beyond itself to the relationship God has with his people. It points to the church being the bride and the Lord as the groom. And on that day, when God wraps up history in Christ, we will be forever with Jesus, who is the friend of sinners. We need to keep this rich gospel in mind when we understand uh, Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark 10, 29 through 30, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in an age to come, eternal life. And I end with that verse, I conclude with that verse, just to simply say this, and this is from over a decade now of pastoral ministry and friendship with gay Christians who are embracing the call of Jesus. And one of the things that's very clear by the unique role that God calls them on is they sacrifice much on this call, and they inspire us. They inspire us with their sacrifice, and they inspire us to follow Jesus harder because of the example that they um, reveal to us. And I just want to linger here to remind you that the Christian calling is never easy, but it is great, and it is glorious. And there is not one person who gives up something for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred and eternity of more pleasures in Jesus Christ because of that. And that is the good news to the LGBTQ community. It's not the false gospels that we hear in religion or in the secular world, but it's simply Jesus Christ and him crucified and all the good and the joy and the sacrifice and the glory that he calls you to in him. And that's why we as Christians have placed our identity in him forever. There's much that can be said. This was just this conversation starter, brothers and sisters. Let's turn now to...